Hello, and welcome to the Workplace Justice Podcast. This podcast helps to inform and empower you about your rights within the workplace. We cover topics and examples of various matters in employment law, including sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, racial discrimination, how the courts define a hostile work environment, whistleblowing, and everything in between. Workplace Justice is brought to you by the New York City employment and civil rights law firm, Nassar Law Group. Here are your hosts, Mahir Nassar, Casey Wolnowski, and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Today's podcast guest is the founder of Critical Equity Consulting, LLC, a boutique organizational justice consulting firm focused on helping organizations rebuild with a primary focus on creating equitable outcomes and seeking justice. Farzan Farzad is an organizational justice practitioner that holds two master's degrees in international affairs and diplomacy. He leverages his unique academic background, extensive travel experience, and experiential knowledge to provide comprehensive, thought-provoking, local and global approaches to his work. Farzan is also a seasoned project manager with expertise in developing strategies that build equitable workplace environments and government services, as well as build internal capacity. He has an extensive background in human rights, social justice, and DEI. So she had posted something about how white men are the, sol- <laughs> are the, are the solution to um, our <laughs> GI efforts, um, and so I, you know, you said all the white dudes are gonna are gonna save us. I thought about it initially. I, I laughed initially. I laughed, but then I I deleted that comment, and then I thought about it a lot more. And I was like, they have the power, right? And this is also coming from another another person that happens to be um, in the space as well. I think you might follow her. She might follow you. She had mentioned to me that we shouldn't place the burden on survivors and victims of employment discrimination to seek accountability. They've already gone through so much. They have dealt with it. We, I, I usually encourage you know them to speak up and advocate for themselves and things of that nature. Whereas she's like, you know, we can't really push this on the victim and the survivors. And I'm like, then who else is going to do it if we don't have the people? I mean, in history, the only people that have ever risen are the oppressed. It's not, it's never been the oppressors like, okay, you know, let's, let's change the dynamics of things and let us give away the power that we, that the system provides for us. So that way we can make everybody else feel included. It's never happened. It's never going to happen. So I guess I'll start off with that. I mean, it's a good question. What do you think about with that post about how white men might be the solution to solving our DEI processes within organizational systems? Yeah, I think you bring up a great point. I found it a little funny myself, like, you know, I was like, this is a little silly, this kind of reeks of saviorism, and nobody needs other people to kind of, people in position of power to to save them, right? So there's this balance between those individuals who are in positions of power, you know, historically over centuries, and have accumulated that power and sit in comfort in that power. They don't have the emotional pain and, and labor and mental anguish of centuries of oppression so they have more energy to kind of put into the into the work and also they are in positions of where that they're you know of an influence right they can change things a lot better like power gives you the ability to enact greater change as an uh, specifically as an individual and then groups 
vis-a-vis uh, -vis others, right? That's the whole purpose of power. The problem is that we talk a lot about the fragility of power, about the like the quote unquote blindness of power. Like you you sit in a position, you don't see the troubles of others, and you don't experience it, and you're less likely to believe it. You only go so far as listening to the point that it doesn't challenge your own power. Like I don't, I will go, I'll do enough, but I don't want anything that I've that I that any of my comforts challenge. So you know, even liberals like do this. Like you have nimbyism in, in a lot of liberal communities, not in my backyard, especially like, you know, I've done work on racial justice in communities and race equity in communities. For example, housing policy, there's some of the biggest sort of resistors in those communities are actually liberal, right? Because they've, they've grown to sit in a position of power. They will say, oh yeah, I don't like discrimination or I don't like racism, but there's a, there's a trade-off. So how do you bridge that? Like, so the people who are oppressed simultaneously have to live in that oppression, which takes a lot of emotional labor, and then have to free themselves, which takes an extra amount of emotional labor. The people in power don't want to give up their power, but also have a responsibility to to do something with that power. You know, like Spider-Man's uncle, you know, talks about great power. And you know, <laughs> that's not, it's, it's true though. Like, so uh, that's why I kind of stopped so much talking about like, inclusion as much as developing mechanisms for communal power, right? So inclusion still is from a position of those, as his post says, those, uh, it is a softer type of saviorism, essentially. So those with power provide things to people without power, right? It's still a power dynamic. It's still, I'm, I'm not challenging the structure. I'm just kind of like being nicer about it, being nicer about my power. Whereas what I talk about these days is like for all of our communities, the communities that we sit in um, who've, that have been, you know, on a global scale, actually, not just like in the U.S. framework. I talk a lot about things in a global context. Those have been like harmed, marginalized and hurt and killed. And over time, they deserve some degree of power to represent themselves as communities. So like in that community, one addresses the problem of individual emotional labor. So you find camaraderie in your group and you're able to kind of, you know, accumulate power to be able to challenge those structures. And two, it doesn't rely on those uh, individuals to kind of, you know, hey, this is what I need. And then you give that back to me, but through your lens, through your specific framework, like you're only going to give me what you think is appropriate, not what I need, right? What, who knows better what I need than me in my community, right? So I think stuff like that, yeah, it's a nice interim, right? It's like you have like really strict, harmful authoritarianism on one end, and you have pure democracy and and like absolute like power distribution on the other end. There is a middle ground of nicer authoritarians, and that's where a lot of DEI sits, right? It's a, it's a lot of like, hey, it's it's focused on leadership, it's focused on uh, those with power providing as opposed to us trying to figure out how we can distribute and accumulate uh, power amongst our own communities to represent ourselves better. There are different schools. I mean, there's a, there's a very liberal framework, right? The liberal framework is about just, you know, being more gentle, but not dismantling the structures that oppress us. It's just like, hey, I'm teaching you how to be a, a, a better citizen as opposed to, for, for those with power, as opposed to, or how to steward your power more effectively and in a 
in a more meaningful way. And that only goes so far. I mean, as soon as something happens or as soon as that power is checked or as soon as a recession hits or anything like that, all that goes out the window and you revert back to that system. So, uh, so that's why I, I was like, okay, this is exactly the opposite of where we're hoping to kind of take a lot of the DEI world. And that's why long-winded answer, but that's, you know. Yeah. And I think it, it definitely drives another question. And you kind of talk about communal power and, you know, recently you had posted something on LinkedIn with respect to you, the concept of leadership and that you felt it was absurd. What are your, what are your thoughts on, like, I guess, when it comes to leadership and, and the type of mm-hmm. thought processes that are kind of built around it within organizational structures uh, versus what you think might be a better option? Yeah, so um, I think like purely the word leadership is agnostic. I don't think there's a lot of like, you know, it can go either way, right? I, what I protest against is the the idea of like this individualistic type of leadership where like one person kind of is going to save us all and like kind of this like saviorist the image of the of the business, you know, you know, the business leader like Bezos, Musk, or anybody that's going to save the world or save like supply chains, even like, you know, like any, anything like that. So my post was about like, you know, if we sort of remove that ingrained association of leadership with, with power, authority, and individualism, what we have left actually is emergence. And what we really want is folks to be able to notice things and see things and have fresh ideas and new ideas and us being able to kind of work through them. Like, oh yeah, you know, in that context, leadership then becomes less of an individualistic endeavor. Like this one person is driving it where we can, as groups, kind of take our own forms of leadership. Like, you know, it's not fixed anymore. Somebody can lead on a project because they've had the experience, they've had the expertise, they have the ideas. And they have a vision and stuff like that. And people give a little bit of uh, power to them to be able to enact it. So like I'm, you know, and that's a voluntary act. Whereas leadership in a position, in a in a role that is fixed, is not challengeable. It's not dynamic. So there's a lot of emerging sort of office decision-making kind of processes. Like you hear about Teal, you hear about um, sociocracy that are kind of challenging this like fixed position of leadership leader is not a job, right? It's a construct. It's an idea. It's like you lead on something. So it's more fluid. And I think that ends up having much better results than appointing a position. And then that person is tasked with being having to have some degree of expertise and knowledge in literally everything, which is impossible. Or like if they don't have, they consult, right? They have a consultative uh, process and they still get credit for it anyway. <laughs> right? It is unsustainable. It is like we're past all of this. Like this type of hierarchical leadership model is is great if you want to develop a highly extractive form of capitalism and grow extremely fast, like command and control. That's good for for hyper-exploitation. But for arrangements where we want to kind of collaborate and synergize, diffusing some of that power and uh, providing opportunities for multiple nodes of leadership, I think, but at this point, like, I mean, how can you even, you know, suggest that? Because the, the term leadership has been so, so like warped by some, so much of the business consulting side of it. Like everything is leadership. Like, you go on LinkedIn. It's like, okay, 
why aren't we talking about collaboration and shared decision-making and, and emergent thought and group planning through things and, and, and finding solutions on multiple areas? Last thing I'll say to that uh, is that the DEI world has also fallen victim to this, right? No one person can know everything about every identity and every ethnic group and every culture on this planet, right? Why don't we all like, you know, represent ourselves in the, in the workplace as opposed to pointing somebody to know about me, you know? So, yeah. And I guess a lot of, a lot of people would probably argue that, and I think what you kind of said here, which kind of makes sense to me is that a lot of these hierarchical structures are kind of situated in a way which there's, they kind of lead to hyper exploitation and more like short-term profits, quicker results, just moves things a lot quicker. Just like, uh, I guess the thought process is that they look at armies, right? Military as the, the model, the institutionalized model of like getting things done. Like leadership really stems in many ways from that, right? I mean, you look at history, you look at Rome, you look at any of those uh, structures that have demonstrated that, oh, this is what leadership is. Let's get things done fact effectively, no questions asked, move forward uh, in, a, in that direction. So I, I like this idea. And so I guess from what you're what you're kind of saying here is that a lot of the way DEI is really what it's really meant to do in light of how leadership structures are being pushed upon these models that exist. Do you feel like that leadership and DEI are actually at crossroads in the way that things exist uh, because you feel as if there should be more of a collaborative, more of an authentic model that kind of demonstrates equality and opportunity for all people? Is that kind of what I'm understanding? Yeah. So I have my theories as to why DEI is this way, which for me doesn't make, you know, too much sense. Going through the history of the the workplace, I mean, Frederick Alou talks about like the progress of like organizational structures, a lot of them rooted in, as you were saying, like militaristic and religious institutions uh, of strata, right? Stratified. Um, so you have pyramid. And one quick thing before I uh, answer your question, I think there's there's this myth about this type of rigid hierarchy being quick, you know, like quick decision making. Um, it can be, right? One person dictates and then hands it down. But like if you read, for example, Gary Hamill, who's like talks about a lot about management theory, his, his thing is like bureaucracy is the uh, or certification is the enemy of speed. So if somebody's on the factory floor and something goes wrong, you got to go to our supervisor and get it approved and then go up the chain and then come back down the chain. By the time you know, that person could have fixed the issue, you could have already lost millions of dollars. It could have been a loss, right? So there's a limit to it, right? Fixed hierarchies lend themselves to bureaucratic structures, right? You have to have bureaucracy um, to be able to uh, function as a, as a hierarchy, right? Eventually, in a startup, people are closer. And of course, you can just like quickly make those decisions. But as you scale, you know, people silo, people kind of have different and it doesn't necessarily work well. So it's not always that the trade-off is speed versus better decisions. It's like sometimes it's both, right? So that's one thing. Second thing is I think like, um, I mean, it makes sense to appoint a single point of contact for the DEI stuff for an organization that is, is more so less interested in the work because that you put the entire burden of an entire DEI program on a single shoulders or a team then it's easy to scapegoat. It's easy to kind of like uh, affix successes and losses and things like that to that, right? It's hard to have a very rigid hierarchy and have this kind of a more distributive model in an area 
like DEI. And then like, you know, people kind of uh, will see that like, oh, this is working really well. Why don't we do this in other parts of our organization? And then that kind of challenges a little bit of the, of the, and this has happened before. There have been companies that have tried more distributive decision-making in, in, te- in certain teams and departments worked out really well. And the other departments were like, why do they get all this power? And so it, it failed. They protested, essentially. Hamill talks about it in the book, uh, Humanocracy. It was, a, I think, a cereal manufacturer that tried it at one point. So if it works, it works. If there are benevolent sort of CDOs that are uh, really interested in more collaborative environments and create that atmosphere, I mean, that works. That's going to happen, right? You have countries around the world that have uh, have authoritarians that are also highly responsive to the needs of their people, right? And the classic example you they'll think of is like Singapore, for example. They're they're very responsive, like, you know, they have benefits and obviously there's it's not all peachy, right, like any other country. Um, but you, it's not impossible, right? But I think it makes more most sense for the DEI world where you're you're managing this high degree of complexity and that complexity is not like objective complexity. It's um, it's tied to emotion, it's tied to history, it's tied to people's lives and people attach a lot of feeling you know into that um that degree of complexity with such a highly emotional endeavor which is the dei world is not suited for an individual to manage that i think that's why you know you see a lot of cases of burnout in the dei the average cdo has a lifespan in a company of about like you know three years i think um that's very short, right? On average, right? Like, and so it's a very, very highly like burnt out like role because of the the nature of how it's structured in an organization, how the power is distributed, like all eyes on them to to fix this. But if it was more distributed, I think uh, you have less of an opportunity for that. You find solidarity amongst uh, people fighting for the finding common ground on the similar causes, right? Um, rights and justice and things like that. And it doesn't put the entire weight of the world on somebody's shoulders to try and fix this in this location, which is this company. And so like this sort of more distributed power model, these models are much more better suited to uh, DEI work. Unfortunately, I think we're still stuck in the trap of, and I don't even know if leadership is the right word, but single power brokers kind of dictating everything in the DEI work. Again, I think that's partly because that's what the, how the organizations themselves are designed, you know, hierarchy and kind of create other hierarchies. And but I'm hoping to see a little bit of a change, not only for the sake of employees, but the people assigned to the roles of leadership in, in DEI. It's like take some of the load off, right, and, and distribute the loads. So. And so, I guess. What would you say is the most difficult part of implementing a DEI program? I can rattle off a list of very, very difficult things. Um, I think where most most companies get stuck, and I can tell you the whole history of why this is, because I was actually just chatting with somebody about like the the nature of stunted progress in America. You know, since the the Reaganite era, the Reagan Thatcher era, but like. The way that translates to now is that the biggest holdup is this jump from planning to implementation, right? We learn how to decolonize our communication. We learn how to think differently. We learn how to, you know, we learn what biases are. We learn what microaggressions are. 
And jumping from that, we can do that on an individual level. Like we can interrupt one another and be like, hey, you know, that's that's wrong and stuff like that. It's very, it's stuck in the communicative realm. It's stuck in the ideological realm. But translating those framings into structural changes is the most difficult part of it. And I think part of that is by design. I think like our, um, you know, part of, you know, it is difficult. It's not easy. Like, you know, for us, there's a lot of like, fear and anticipation about like uh, developing an experimental and iterative process of a DEI strategy that is also like has such like we're talking about emotional charge behind it, right? It's not like computer programming, for example, where you can try it out. If it fails, it fails. Like there's so much more risk and at stake in a DEI program when you're involving human beings in their lives um, that you're very much afraid to try experimental stuff and change things and move things along. And so that's that's probably the most difficult part of it. I think I think that there's a long history of this and there's like this generational gap between older generations that are more willing to try a little bit, more willing to take action, but don't necessarily know, you know, the best path forward and the younger generations that are much more ideologically aware of their oppression and surroundings and but like have this uh, latent anticipation in, in hesitation to try things out to make that leap. And so I think that we've had this issue where progress has been stunted for so so many decades in this country um, in certain respects, especially on labor rights and things like that. Younger generations are looking for examples. And the only thing they can look for examples is in the past. And they go into reading theory, right? A lot of theory. They, you know, experts and all of the theorists, right? That's great. But reading something 150, 200 years ago that has, uh, has, doesn't have one-to-one applicability today, like you have to figure out how to translate that. And that translation in from, from theory to action, nobody's taught younger generations that, right? I'm generalizing, but a lot of the older generations, because of their upbringing, much more action-oriented, but don't have the theoretical foundations to fight the type of oppression that we're trying to you know, dismantle. It's part of that trajectory and it all just kind of fits into this, like moving from ideas and ideologies to action is, is is so incredibly difficult. Like developing a strategy, implementing that strategy, learning where to capture the data that something's not working and to adjust or to scrap and start over and then vocalize the mistake, right? It's a lot of difficult work that, frankly, a lot of people are afraid to do, you know? Do you feel that a lot of the diversity uh, equity and inclusion efforts that are being conducted by employers is really empowered enough to be able to make a change within those environments? Or do you feel like it's still not there to really, because you mentioned a lot of the turnover, right? So there's so much turnover. Is it is it that feeling that they're not able to get things done and that they're getting burned out by the inability of actually structuring the change that they want to kind of implement? Or is it that, you know, it's just hard to do? I think it depends on what, like what you mean by empower. I think like there's a lot of empowerment in folks to again like communicate well, try not to be as racist or as sexist or misogynist or ableist when you speak at work. There is uh, less empowerment in the structural aspects of it, right? There's like this cognitive dissonance, like, and I'm speaking from personal experience as well as like professional experiences, like how come we talk the talk now, right? Like we know all the right things to say, we're using the right words. Why does it still feel so oppressive in here? 
And that's because we're not deeply interrogating the, the structure. The structure was built on oppression, and just removing oppressive terminology doesn't doesn't change things, right? Right. And that kind of feeds back into this liberal kind of mindset of I'm going to do just enough uh, that it doesn't challenge my power and authority, but any sort of deeper change is is hand, like you know not in my backyard or kind of whatever. That's where I think we are. I go into places that I'm like, wow, they're saying all the right things and stuff like that. And then you go into it and you're like, wow, you know, they're still very exploitative when it comes to people's labor, right? It's still like people are working like excessive amounts. I see you, I hear you and all this like, you know, very DEI talk. And at the end of the day, like they're burnt out. So what happens is like, DEI ends up becoming just another thing to do and people end up hating it because it's like, you know, I talked about this in another podcast. It's like you're, you're carrying the weight of multiple systems of oppression on your shoulders. And then somebody comes and says, okay, so we're, we're doing this celebratory thing to, to okay, great. I mean, I, I would be happy to lighten the load for me so I can take that on, you know, so I can take on different things. So it's just like it's adding on top of it and it becomes just so overwhelming and burnout like kind of stuff like and then DEI practitioners are trying to motivate people to kind of do more things. And everyone's already burnt out by the structural oppression that exists in the organization. But they talk well, right? Like they've learned that not to be microaggressive, which is wonderful. I mean, that's great to reduce workplace traumas, but nobody's addressing like the systemic issues. The same thing's happening in, um, you know, the field of psychology. Everyone wants to talk about individualized care and self-care and stuff like that. And we're not talking about the social determinants of health. We're not talking about the structural systemic factors that are going into the social structures that are being piled onto me that's causing, causing me to feel this. Right, right. Yeah. So the same thing mirrors in our organizations. And I think if you want to talk about empowerment, it can't just be communicative. I mean, that's only a part of it, Right. Ideological decolonization is a sliver of structural and physical decolonization required to kind of put our planet back on a path of, you know, of healing and, and, and finding, you know, some balance, right? So, yeah, yeah, that's um, it's good that you mentioned that. So, tell me a little bit about your company. You're the founder of Critical Equity Consulting. Tell me a little bit about what your company does for different organizations. I started off in the DEI world. I eventually I started looking into some things like a little bit outside of DEI. So now I refer to myself as an organizational justice practitioner and uh, organizational justice practice, which I think kind of resonates with the podcast and what you do. Uh, justice on a more like sociological, not like you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't have any like legal. Uh, justice you know, is uh, justice, right? I mean, creating to fair environments is. We, we do it in a legal sphere. I, I deal with the same issue in terms of systemic legal injustices that exist. So we work within the systems that exist to try to alter and change them. But uh, I think organizational justice, workplace justice, pretty much this similar concepts, you know? Yeah, like taking basically like the wider concept of justice and localizing it into a, in an organization, right? And so it's a just a, like a more local version of a broader sort of like a push for it. Critical equity, I, I started it in the, the height of the pandemic in the summer of 2020. Things are good. Like uh, we do a lot of very interesting stuff for organizations from like data, doing surveys and analysis. We've done pay equity studies. Uh, we've done, um, we do a number of different types of trainings. Um, a lot of my work centers around 
the concept of power in the workplace and how it's distributed, how it's codified. Is it fluid? Is it fixed? You know, like how we structure it and then designing sort of inclusion interventions or equity interventions based on the structure of power, you know, as, as you've determined in an organization, how it fits and stuff like that. And so as, that's why I call myself organizational justice, because I think it's a little bit deeper systemic stuff. And a lot of the work that I do is sort of like incorporating some of the more distributive power models, like some concepts around self-managed organizations, self-management, like, you know, I, I learn a lot from cooperatives and how they operate and uh, organizations that are doing really well on labor rights specifically and how that integrates with good DEI practices. So like, it's not different, but it's like, it's a little bit like a, a more synergistic area than DEI, which is a very specialized area. So that's kind of like the structure of uh, where we work. And so, um, yeah, we do surveys, we do trainings, we do ad hoc consulting, hourly consulting. If there's some projects that, um, that need to be, we, we've, you know, we'll help, uh, implement boost up like employee resource groups and other uh, mechanisms for representation, such as DEI councils and things like that, and, and, and teach how to manage things in a more shared collaborative environment to, to kind of extract the, the needs of the employees better, you know, to kind of learn the needs of the employees better. So. Okay, wonderful. And so I guess in your practice, what are the top three diversity issues you've seen in the workplace? And why do you think companies struggle to address these issues? I think the top one was was this. It's related to this like uh, notion of ideas to implementation. I think there's like a halt of momentum in in the DEI practices a lot in the work where people are stuck. You know, I've seen is actually in the past couple months everybody seems to be very stuck now. Like we've done all the work, how come we're not seeing results? And I'm like, well, we've learned how to do the work. We're not actually doing it. So that's one. Second thing is the burden on uh, DEI folks in, in an organization or like the responsibility put on their shoulders to, to manage the entire process. And there's not a distribution of risk. And there's not a distribution of the ownership of the DEI work, right? And so it becomes an easy scapegoat to kind of uh, put the quote-unquote failures, I don't know if you, like that's even the proper term, onto a single individual. So that leads to high degrees of, of burnout for uh, the work. The third thing, which is related to that burnout, the way DEI is being conducted now, there should be some formality and some like common ground and some like procedural standards of operating in, in DEI work, right? I'm against that, but if you want to do traditional DEI, you have to have that. We don't have those, right? So now like there's a lot of like certificate programs that are coming up, like trying to standardize it. Everyone's got like different approaches and things like that. And it's very confusing. My appeal is like, so if you want to do DEI work that way, you need standards. My appeal is that let's forget all of that, right? We have some grab bag of things we can try, sure, like removing demographic identifiers on resumes. Okay, let's try it, whatever. But my whole thing has been in the absence of that, we don't need to standardize the industry because we need we need some very flexible uh, things for how an organization operates, right? If it's operating in its unique structure, it's got its, its unique body of employees. My appeal is to less so standardize things to do and more standardize like ways of of getting what people need. How to be able to incorporate like different voices 
incorporate decision-making, incorporate the needs and values of all of your employees and being able to collectively move toward a developing a organization value system and then operating procedures and then like strategies and then all these things based off of this more shared collective atmosphere in the workplace. So the traditional DEI approach, I think is even DEI practitioners, like I, like, like I can, I barely know what to do. I like, and I've been in this role. Like, there's so many things we can try and people are trying out and so many things like, you know, people are calling employee resource groups, different things these days. And it's all essentially the same thing. It's about represent, representing people in the workplace. And it becomes so confusing and that confusion leads to like a lack of action and then that plus the entire responsibility of, of actually getting something done, it's a disconnect and it, it leads to a lot of failure. So I think fundamentally, like for us, we get really got to structure a process to be able to, to get the needs of the employees. I mean, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of great collaboration tools and a lot of great like meeting facilitation tools where we can decide collectively how we're going to approach this, right? And from anything from a small item to an entire strategy. So that way, if we ever come up against any issue, like we don't know how to tackle this. Okay, well, let's use the power of the collective. Let's kind of, let's dialogue about it. Let's go around. What about this, you know, use your six thickening ads or whatever, like kind of, you know, office collaboration tool. Um, what's What would work from this? What's being left out? Who's being left out? Which community is being left out? Can we incorporate them into this value system and then eventually the strategy and things like that? So yeah, I gave a solution when you asked the problems, but like... Uh, I think that's where we're at right now. Well, thank you, Tarzan, so much for taking the time to speak with us. It was extremely insightful. I'm having my mind is going in a lot of different directions. So it's awesome. I'm thankful for your for your insight and for your valuable work. I know that a lot of what you do is is making a difference to people by way of them really thinking about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and how it's impacting our society. So once again, thank you for taking out the time and thank you for your work. Of course. And thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. I, I truly enjoyed it. And thank you for providing the platform for uh, this discussion. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks for joining us today on the Workplace Justice Podcast. Love this episode? Leave us a review and tell us what you think about our show. If you haven't subscribed yet, head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss a new episode. Need help? Talk to an employment lawyer today. Visit our website at nisarlaw.com or call 212-600-9534 for your free case evaluation. See you in the next episode.